Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai. And this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. My guest today is Yasha Monk, a political scientist at John Hopkins University and a journalist who's written for the New York Times, Foreign Affairs and The Atlantic. His book, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure, takes a broad look at global history to answer the question of how we can learn to live together in spite of our differences. At a moment when it seems as if Americans can't agree on anything, when political divisions seem more prominent in the country's politics than they have since probably the civil rights era, it's a particularly urgent question. Yasha, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to this conversation. What prompted you to start thinking about that question, about how Americans can learn to live with one another in terms of this concept of diverse democracies? Um, well, I've been working for a number of years on the rise of populism, the crisis of democracy. In fact, I like to say that I'm a democracy hipster. I was worried about the stability of our democratic systems but before it was, <laughs> before cool. It was cool. And, yeah. um, you know, one of the uh, reasons for the rise of populism has been said by many people, and I broadly agree with that, to be the set of demographic changes that we've seen in many Western democracies in particular. Um, the fact that a country like Britain, like Germany, where I grew up, in certain ways like the United States as well, has just come to be much more ethnically and religiously diverse over the course of the last uh, decades uh, than it was 50 or 100 years ago. And, uh, you know, as the conversation really came to center on that topic, I noticed that people were starting to be incredibly pessimistic about it. But there's a sort of pessimism on the right and the far right, which essentially says the strength of our countries used to be that they're more homogeneous and that, uh, you know, they're, they're populated by, quote unquote, the right sort. And now that um, these immigrants are coming in, this is going to pose these tremendous problems. Um, but also a pessimism among uh, the left and the center, among my friends and colleagues, which basically said that um, this is such a hard challenge and our countries are so defined by racism and discrimination that we really are not going to succeed in uh, meeting that challenge and that perhaps it's inevitable that these uh, you know, crazy right-wingers are going to uh, win. Um, and so I wanted to... Uh, I hate this phrase, to double click on this topic and say, all right, is this really new? I think it is. Um, uh, you know, is it really hard? I think it is. Are we really screwed? No, I actually think that we've made real progress over the last decades and can continue to build on that. And so that's the topic and the main thesis of this book. So you broadly accept the idea that the diversity of democracies today is new and that it is broadly a, let's say, a challenge. I was going to say a problem, but let's say a challenge. Uh, yes. So, uh, you know, there's some important distinctions between uh, uh, the established democracies. Uh, countries like Britain and Germany and France and Italy and so on, we were uh, quite homogeneous at the founding compared to what we have today. Um, when you go back to, to the United Kingdom in, in 1950 or so, a huge majority of people living in the country um, uh, had been born there, had parents who were born there, had grandparents who were born there, who had great-grandparents who, who, who were born there. Most, by a very large margin, were white. Uh, most, by a very large margin, were Christian. Um, you know, today, none of these things are, are true. You have a much larger number 
of people who are born outside of a country, much larger number of people who have parents or grandparents who are born outside of a country. You have many more Britons today who have origins in Asia and Africa and the Middle East. Um, and of course, you have much more religious diversity uh, as well. So um, that's a fundamental change. Um, in countries like the United States, it's a little bit more complicated because America, of course, has always been very diverse. At the moment of the founding of the American Republic, there was a lot of uh, there's already a lot of uh, Black Americans in the country, and there's, of course, Native Americans and, and others. Um, but they were always excluded from the political system. So the solution uh, was as simple as it was unjust, which is simply to say, look, you don't really count. You're uh, outside of our political structures. In some cases, you are enslaved in the most uh, terrible ways. Um, and so, you know, the question of how do we sustain a democracy with people who have these very different uh, identities, and sometimes very different convictions, uh, wasn't that hard because the solution was simply domination and exclusion. And so what we're trying to do now in the United States is to have this deeply ethnically and religiously diverse democracy, which has become more diverse than it was in the past, but that most importantly actually is trying to treat its citizens as true equals. And that too is a new departure point. So that's why I call the book The Great Experiment yeah. because it is uh, a big challenge. We can talk about why it's a challenge. Uh, but most importantly, it is new. We don't have... Uh, a playbook for here's how we do it. Okay. And what is the challenge precisely? Because if the issue arises around racial and religious diversity, what are the challenges? You talked about a difference of identity, but it sounds like you also mean a difference of values, of political values? Uh, well, not necessarily of political values, but that can be the case in certain contexts. I think that the challenge, first of all, is just that human beings are deeply groupish, that they have this deep tendency towards forming groups and favoring the in-group over everybody else. Um, in the book, I tell the story of Henry Teifel, um, a, uh, a social psychologist who actually was working in, in England in the 50s and 60s. And um, you know, he was really uh, uh, shaped by World War II, and he wanted to understand uh, not just whether groups had this tremendous power over us and could motivate um, some of the worst crimes in history because he knew that intimately in those famous studies like the Milgram experiment, the Stanford prison experiment that were showing that every day. Um, but why that is? He said, what is it about groups that makes them so powerful? And so he had this really intuitive uh, idea to say, look, I'm going to create groups that are so silly, but are so devoid of meaning that nobody is going to uh, be acting on, on their behalf. And then uh, I will slowly ladle on new characteristics to them until they motivate people in those ways. And that'll teach us what makes groups act in these kind of extreme ways. And so he got and a that experiment, of... that experiment worked, did it? Well, it failed, in fact. So uh, he got a bunch of kids in from uh, Bristol, uh, where he was teaching into the lab, and uh, you know, teenagers, he showed them a sheet of paper with, let's say, about 150 dots on it. And he said, uh, you know, have a guess how many dots are on the sheet of paper. And so some said 125 and some said 175. He said, great, so I'm going to have underestimators and overestimators. Then he had them playing a simple allocation game. And it turned out that the underestimators started immediately to discriminate against the overestimators. And the overestimators discriminated against the underestimator. So he failed because he tried to create a group that was silly enough that people wouldn't act on its behalf. And it turns out that there are no such groups, that our mm. instinct to favor the in-group is so strong that we're infinitely inventive 
in the kind of lines that we that we draw. Now, but if if we are infinitely inventive in the way that our identities are made, doesn't that suggest that the idea that racial and religious distinctions can be fluid? Because you don't have to necessarily identify with a particular religious or racial group, even if you come from that group. You might identify politically. You might identify culturally with something else. You might say, you know, I'm into football, you're into cricket or whatever. I, I think that's exactly right. But there's, there's two points here. So the first is that um, we know from history that there are some lines of identity which tend to lead to more conflict. Uh, than others. Um, so we don't have many historical examples of underestimators fighting against overestimators. <laughs> we have some that are a little bit difficult to understand in retrospect, like the Guelphs versus the Ghibellines. Um, but, you know, most of the worst conflicts in human history have been along the lines of ethnicity, of religion, of tribe, of language, uh, of nation. Um, so there are some recurring usual suspects which have motivated many of the worst wars and civil wars and genocides and forms of ethnic cleansing and that i think we should be deeply aware of now at the same time you're absolutely right that what uh, your primary line of identity is and how motivating it is really dep does depend on the context and so i tell another story in the book um, about the chawas and the tumbukas uh, two tribes which live on both sides of a border between Malawi and Zambia. And so a political scientist went to Malawi and he went to a Chawa village and he asked Chavas about their opinion of Tumbukas. Mm. And they said, look, Tumbukas have these weird cultural, uh, you know, rites where they dance all wrong at the weddings, not like we do. And, you know, <laughs> once the newlywed couple gets married, they go and live with the bride's family. That's weird. They should obviously live with the groom's family. Obviously. Um, Obviously. Yeah. Uh, and when he asked, you know, would you ever marry a Tumbuka? Or would you ever vote for a Tumbuka political candidate? And most Chavas said, no, no, I, I couldn't imagine such a thing. Now he went to a Tumbuka village and it turned out they had exactly the same prejudices in reverse, right? Like their rights are weird, their dances are all wrong. You know, why do we go and live with a groom's family? They should live with a, uh, you know, bride's family. Um, so it looked at first sight like, you know, what journalists like to call at the time of the war in Yugoslavia, sort of these primordial hatreds. You know, these people have always hated each other. They're always going to hate each other. There's nothing to be done about that. Yeah. But then this political scientist traveled across uh, the border to Zambia. Now, the border between Malawi and Zambia is one of those typical colonial borders drawn, you know, by some Brit on, you know, uh, on a map who's probably yeah. never even been to the, to the place or always in the a Britain. century. And always drawn Always a Britain, map, yeah. yes. Yeah. And um, always on the map, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, there is no uh, deep cultural difference here between those two sides of the Malawi-Zambian border. Uh, but he went to a Chawa village in Zambia and he asked people, how do you feel about Tumbukas? And he said, look, they have different rights. You know, they, they dance differently at the weddings and, you know, they go and live with the bride's side of the family. That's not what we do. He said, well, how do you feel about that? Would you ever marry one of them? Would you ever vote for one of the candidates? He said, yeah, I could imagine marrying one of them. Why not? And I, I would vote for one of them political candidates, he went to a Tumbuka village in, in, in Zambia. And again, same story. They were actually aware of the cultural differences, but much more positive about, uh, uh, about the other tribe. So why is this? Well, the answer is political in this case. Malawi is a relatively small country. And uh, these two tribes together make up the lion's share of a population. And so they are always competing against each other. 
and we're mobilizing against each other. And so we come to hate each other. In Zambia, uh, these two tribes together are a relatively small part of the overall population. And political conflict tends to be between Eastern tribes and Western tribes. And so we're actually on the same side of a political coalition. And so that's why we have these more positive views against each other. So um, all of which is to say, uh, I do think that there are some fundamental categories of identity which are more likely than others to lead to conflict when you look at history, ethnicity, religion, and a few others. But the extent to which they become politically noxious really does depend on the context. And one of the parts of a project of building diverse democracies is to make sure that people are always going to be members of their groups, they're always going to identify strongly with their religion and perhaps their national origin, but we also do want them to have a shared national identity which allows them to say, hey, um, your answers may come from a different part of the world than mine, you may have a different religion than me, but we are also members of this nation together and that gives us solidarity to each other. But the example doesn't, the example of the um, Chawas and the Timbukas doesn't track directly onto uh, modern uh, democratic states because in modern democratic states, so for example, in European states, there isn't a large minority versus a large minority. There is one majority in the UK, for example, white people who are 75, 77% of the population and lots of minorities. So doesn't it rather suggest that actually the minorities are going to be able to get on fine as long as there isn't some large minority fighting another large minority? Isn't that what you took away from the example of Zambia? Uh, well, I think it depends on the exact um, uh, configuration, actually. So uh, we have some research on this in political science, which is pretty suggestive and which basically says that, uh, you know, very homogeneous countries tend to do fine. Very diverse countries tend to be, do fine because nobody can hope to be in charge. Where you often get problems is when you have two relatively evenly matched groups, both of which can hope to win power. I think that actually tends to be, and it's really an area that you know much better than I do, uh, the problem in, in some parts of the Middle East, right? If you have a country where you have 55% of Sunnis and 45% of Shias, that is exactly in the kind of uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, sweet spot, negatively speaking, yeah. um, where each side is, hey, I can beat you out and I can be in power. Um, yes. So so it depends on the exact uh, uh, constellation. Now, by the way, I think that that is a reason why it's a very big mistake how people, especially in the United States, now tend to talk about the country. We've naturalized this way of speaking as, you know, there's whites and there's people of color. And, you know, by 2045 or thereabouts, uh, uh, people of color are going to be in the majority. So it's going to be a majority-minority country. And yeah. on the right, this uh, uh, inspires a lot of fears uh, down to conspiracy theories of great replacement and so on. On the left, that's often talked about as as, as a hopeful thing that uh, you know this means that um, the Democratic Party is going to win because it has more non-white voters and there's going to be a big cultural transformation, a big political transformation. I think sociologically, all of this is hogwash. When you look at uh, the way the country works, it's not at all clear that the line lies easily between white and non-white. In some ways, it lies between black and non-black. In other ways, it's just a series of complicated lines. Um, uh, people who, 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 I mean, one of the utterly absurd aspects, by the way, of the uh, American way of classifying race is that uh, uh, many people who have uh, exclusively European origin and who are uh, white in appearance, whatever that exactly might mean, yeah. um, are classified as people of color. Because if uh, your ancestors are conquistadors who moved to Mexico, 
And then you move from Mexico to the United States when you're a Hispanic who counts at some bizarre level as a person of color. Mm-hmm. The only ethnic group that is nearly exclusively classified as white in the United States is, in fact, uh, Arabs, because they do not count as people of color, and very few of them have a connection to Latin America, and so they're all white. So this whole you know thing makes no real sense. But there's an important you mean which is yeah before you say it so you mean that the the reason why Arabs are mainly classified as white is because they tend to come from one particular region whereas let's say Europeans who migrated to Latin America and then migrated again those ethnic groups are actually counted as being from Latin America that's the yeah there's just this weird category of Hispanic which then gets uh, subsumed under people of color but of mm. course if you know something about the politics of Latin America there are stark ethnic divides within some of those countries. And there's many yeah, uh, immigrants yeah. from Latin American countries who regard themselves as white, um, which yeah, is Italians, one of the reasons... Argentina and so on. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, I mean, according to this classification, somebody like Louis C.K. is a person of color um, because he, in fact, has a Mexican parent, a Mexican-Jewish parent, as it happens. But, you know, the whole thing just doesn't make sense, right? Um, and so I just think it's important to resist this narrative, which uh, is based in, I think, a sociologically false description of a country as easily being split into these two blocks, but which might, if all of the institutions incorporated and speak about it uncritically, come to have a kind of reality. Which kind of reality which do yeah. start to think of yeah. themselves as, am I white or am I a person of color? And that is the most important defining thing about me. And yeah. that would be very dangerous, because then in a couple of decades, we have exactly the kind of even split between two um, uh, groups with some kind of homogeneous self-identity that leads to very deep conflict. I don't think that's likely to happen, but if it does happen, it would be a very bad thing, not a good thing, it'd be a very dangerous yeah. thing. Yeah, I mean, I, this I wanted us to kind of ponder this a little bit because I, I, I'm like you. I mean, I've always been very uncomfortable with this idea that there is even such a thing as white people. I mean, there are so many different varieties of human beings. And then you layer on top of it this idea that people have political differences and cultural differences and people like this and people like that. The idea that they can all form one kind of block is crazy in exactly the same way that we wouldn't like to talk about that with other with communities that we consider to be minorities. So, for example, um, you know, Arabs or Africans, we wouldn't like to say, oh, you guys are all the same, surely. People will get very offended about that. But we seem to be okay with lumping white people all together and we don't think that's a problem. But I, I wanted us to kind of ponder it a bit because isn't there, when you think about, um, well, first of all, actually, I wanted to ask if you you are someone who I think considers himself to be of the left, but that's right, I think. Yeah. But you also put quite a lot of stock in the idea of racial and religious differences. And I wondered if that made you uncomfortable a bit. Well, um, I mean, it does. Uh, it depends on what exactly you mean by putting stock in them, right? Uh, you know, like you, think I, that the, um, you, you think that those distinctions are, they really matter even over time. So unlike what we were talking about with cultural differences, which can change, you think that there is much more likely to be conflict around religious differences or around racial differences, because those in some ways hold more water for a longer period of time. Yeah, so let me let me tell you sort of perhaps my personal story on this because it helps to explain where I fall on these things. So you know, I come from a Jewish family. My my ancestors have been in the wrong place at the wrong time for many generations, 
Um, and my grandparents actually, uh, you know, grew up in Shtetls in Central and Eastern Europe uh, on, on the territory of what today is the Ukraine. Um, and they, as teenagers, became communists because they had a universalist brand of leftism, right? What appealed to them about leftism, about uh, the promises of communism, which were never kept, um, was the idea that, uh, you know, whether you happen to be Jewish or not, whether you happen to come from one ethnic group or another, uh, was going to matter a lot less. But that is not what we should base our politics around. Mm. Um, and so, uh, you know, they experienced in terrible ways the failings of the communist uh, regimes, including the failing to live up to that basic universalist uh, aspiration. Um, they were thrown out of Poland in 1968 when the government went on a big uh, state-sponsored anti-Semitic uh, campaign. Um, and my parents, who were 20 years old, were thrown out of the country that 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 that, that they grew up in. Mm. Um, but but what I do still uh, inherit from them is a form of universalist leftism. That is actually. Uh, the thing that, in my mind, makes me a lefty. I mean, I also think a generous welfare state is good and so on. But at the most fundamental level, it is this hope that we should not let these ethnic and cultural and religious differences uh, uh, set us apart. Um, at the same time, and, 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 you know, when I was young, part of how it played out was that I thought we should all be individuals, or perhaps we should all be cosmopolitans who care equally about every person in the world as they do about people in their own country and so on, but we shouldn't define yeah. ourselves by groups at all. Yeah. And part of what's changed in the last 20 years is my recognition of how powerful groups are psychologically, as we see in that experiment title, but also politically. What happens, for example, if we allow the worst kinds of people to monopolize the symbols of a nation. If the only person waving an American flag is Donald Trump, um, that makes it easier for him to to win. Um, and, and that is of, of very deep concern to me. Mm. And so I think that, um, you know, in aspiration, I remain a universalist leftist. And I, in fact, um, uh, uh, find the uh, extent to which parts of the left have given up that universalist aspiration for forms of identity politics to be deeply troubling. Um, but I also think that we have to be realistic about the ways in which people will always be groupish and in which a form of a groupism will often take an ethnic or cultural or religious form. So we need a society in which we encourage people to build links beyond those kinds of divisions, um, in which we ensure that they have forms of solidarity that are derived from things other than those kinds of uh, ethnic groups in particular. Um, but we also need to have a philosophically liberal society, a free society, in which people feel that they can be true to those kinds of group identities without having to come into conflict with others. And that, I suppose, is is a message that perhaps resonates more easily in an American context, particularly if you're talking about the public identification of faith, which is something that you will know from your time in Europe. It's not something that is particularly common in Europe. It's something that's, you know, because of the history of European conflicts, there's a tendency to frown upon it. But it sounds as if you are quite comfortable with it. And it also sounds as if you are quite comfortable with the idea of public displays of, of patriotism, flag waving. Uh, well, so it depends, uh, you know, again, on the exact context. Um, I think Britain actually went extremely far in a kind of public um, endorsement of religion. Um, uh, uh, you know, when you look at 
uh, when the governments of, of the 90s and 2000s, uh, they embraced, for example, state-sponsored faith schools, uh, in which the state pays for schools which are Jewish or Muslim or uh, Hindu or Sikh, um, and which limit their enrollment in these kinds of ways. I think that's a terrible mistake, because mm. uh, that goes beyond the natural right of free association, which people, of course, have, beyond the fact that many people will choose to remain mostly within their religious communities and think that that's the most important thing in their lives and most of their friends and acquaintances and perhaps even business partners are going to stem from the same community. That's fine. That's a freedom you have in a country, not just like the United States, but also like the United Kingdom. That's fine. But for the state to actually encourage forms of education in which children are completely segregated from anybody who doesn't have the same faith and often from anybody who doesn't have the same kind of cultural and ethnic origin as a result, yeah. uh, that I think is a, is a really grave mistake. So, um, so but the, so, so the reasoning, me, but let me just press you on this because I'm interested in this because Yasha, the reasoning that the Blairite governments gave at the time for that sounds like the kind of reasoning that you might accept. Their reasoning at the time was to say that people wanted these faith schools, that people were anyway going to send their children to these sorts of schools, that they wanted that common heritage. So what's the difference? Why don't we encourage them? Because those faith schools were also doing well academically. That sounds like I, the I kind of... yeah. Uh, no, I don't think that's exactly right. There was also at the time a very popular uh, surge of communitarian uh, thinking, communitarian political philosophy. And when you look at some of the documents that the government published at the time, it really was casting Britain as a group of groups, as a community of communities, in which uh, the fundamental status of each citizen was as much as a member of their group as it was as a, a particular citizen, or I suppose, as you might say in Britain, subject um, uh, in the country. Um, and so it was, in certain ways, closer to something like the Lebanese model, where um, you're really deeply defined politically and in other ways by, um, you know, whether you're a Shia or whether you're Sunni or whether you're a Maronite Christian. I'm not saying that Britain at the time looked like that. It was very mm -hmm. far from mm -hmm. Lebanon lived reality. But yeah. there was a, an influential strain of thinking which lionized that kind of communitarianism. Now, here's where I stand. I have a whole chapter in the book that tries to puzzle through what is the appropriate relationship between the state, the group, and the individual. And I uh, reject two kinds of uh, false starts. Uh, one is a, a form of liberalism which says, um, you know, everybody should just be an individualist, right? I live a very individualistic life. I am sort of a liberal, both in the political sense and the comprehensive sense. Um, but I think it would be a mistake for me to say, I think everybody needs to be like me. You know, nobody should have, be deeply religious. Nobody should... Uh, choose to spend most of the time within the religious community. That is a, a kind of form of imperialism, actually. I have to have respect mm. for my fellow citizens who are much more religious, much more devout than, than I am. And they should have uh, uh, you know, freedom to live in the ways that they want as well. And I think that philosophical liberals, and I count myself as a, as a left-wing philosophical liberalism, liberal, um, philosophical liberals have, I think, often gone wrong on this. And so there's a, a bit of internal critique here. But I also very firmly reject the communitarian model, the model which says that you're defined as a member of your religious or other kind of cultural or ethnic community, because that has really deep downsides as well. First of all, it makes it really hard to have effective democratic control over the rules which bind you. It makes it really difficult to build real connections um, between different people. I have two friends in Lebanon who got married um, and the state for years would not accept and recognize their, their union. 
yeah. because they stem from different religious communities. That is a nightmare of a kind of society we might build. I think the image of a salad bowl or a mosaic where we just live next to each other and sometimes perhaps we look up and sort of appreciate, oh, look, there's this cute little community over there and I like that one too, but, you know, I've never spoken to them. That yeah, is yeah. a really nightmarish vision of a kind of country we should build. And so mm. the way that I think about it is that we have to have a double freedom. Um, we have a freedom from, we have to have freedom from people who are members of other groups that might want to oppress us. That means that um, if I'm in a political minority, I need to be able to robustly criticize the government without having to be afraid of going to jail, as so many you know, brave dissidents around the world are going to jail now. Yeah. It also means, of course, that I have to be able to worship in ways that the majority of my fellow citizens dislike um, without having to fear that they will jail me or uh, forbid me from building my house of worship or turning up at my doorstep and intimidating me. So I have to have protection against outsiders. But there's also a second freedom we need, and that is the freedom from, from our own group, that historically, very often, the form of oppression that people have faced is their own parents, their own aunties and uncles, their own priests and imams and rabbis. And we need to make sure that in our society, if you want to leave a community in which you grew up, if you want to date somebody your parents approve of, if you want to strike out on your own, you're also able to do that. And communitarians cannot explain why that is the case. I drew a very clear line there. We need to have protection against a tyrannical state, but we also need to have a state that's strong enough to come and rescue us from our own communities when our own elders, our own parents are telling us, you must live this way and we're going to punish you in some kind of uh, way if you don't. I, I like this analogy you've drawn between the experience of Lebanon and um, the UK. I mean, the problem with Lebanon, as you've outlined, and I was very pleased to hear you uh, expound on it, is that it hands too much power to communal and religious gatekeepers, because these are now the community leaders and the religious leaders that decide how the community is perceived, what its norms are, and so forth. But if you think about Think about Britain as an example. I like this idea that you think that there was a tendency to be communitarian in the 2000s, that you that the country or the political leadership of the country thought of the nation as being a collection of communities. I wonder if you can say more about that and why do you think that is so dangerous? Because there are other countries in Europe as well which would think of themselves as being that collections of communities, you know, associations, and they come together to form a state? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know where you're thinking, perhaps Switzerland or Belgium or something like that. Um, you know, those cases, I think, slightly different because you have uh, sort of different linguistic or national communities which have pre-existed for a very, very long time. And they enter into a kind of confederation. Um, that's a very complicated process, um, and it's rare that it works out well. Um, you know, it's still not clear to me that Belgium will exist in its current form in a hundred years. Um, uh, but that in itself, I don't have a problem with. I think when when different groups uh, have very long-standing cultural differences and are geographically concentrated, and they have certain forms of regional autonomy, as Quebec does in Canada, that's perfectly fine. Um, where I worry about is when you start to say, hey, we're going to have these different uh, religious or cultural communities living on the same territory, uh, but they're going to be bound by different sets of rules and obligations. Um, because there you very quickly get into the territory of 
creating a whole bunch of disadvantages uh, for people. One of which is that if you're not clearly a member of one or the other group, if you have parents from both different groups, um, your life becomes very, very difficult. Uh, one of the problems is that um, it then uh, all the pressures of society start to militate against building connective tissue, against people making friendships together, against people uh, cooperating, uh, and that uh, becomes very dangerous. Um, you know, the, the starting point of this in political science was a very influential set of theories by a Dutch uh, uh, scholar called Arendt Leipard, who looked at uh, Lebanon and said, you know, this is the solution. If you have these deep conflicts between different religious or cultural groups, you simply devolve all of the uh, uh, decisions down to the communal level, mm. um, and uh, that way you can keep the peace. And in a way, that's understandable, right? If you have uh, uh, people fighting over what the right marriage or divorce laws would be because they have these very different cultural religious ideas, yeah. well, just devolve it down a level, and then you have less to fight over, and perhaps that'll work. The problem is that he published this as... Uh, the solution, and it turned out to be very influential for decades to come in 1969, and a few years later, you had the outbreak of a really protracted and bloody civil war, because um, one thing that these kinds of communitarian solutions do is to cast current divisions of identity in stone, and this is something we should be very, very careful about. Why is benevolence less pillarized today than it was in the past? Why it's less defined by the very stark division you used to have in the country between Catholics and Protestants and liberals. Well, because the country became more secular and those distinctions became less important, today it's a much less divided society. And that's a good thing. The country was able to evolve in that kind of way. If all of the rights and duties you have in a country are shaped by your ascriptive identity, it becomes much less likely that the lines of division um, become more porous and that means that you freeze conflicts and increase the likelihood of bad outcomes up to and including civil war. Hmm. I, I want to take the Lebanon example and, and move on a step, um, because I wonder if we can think a bit about the historical context between different groups. We, we're having a kind of an abstract debate about you know, the effect of in-group bias. But if we're talking about Lebanon or the United States, the intercommunal conflict and the divisions between these groups, they exist because of a very real history, a history of, of injustice. And if that isn't resolved, then the, the tensions are likely to re-emerge sometime in the future. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I, I talk in the book about the three sort of historic modes of failure of diverse societies, um, which include fragmentation, as, as in the case of uh, Lebanon, which includes... Um, forms of structured anarchy as in places that just have never really managed to build an effective state between because different groups mistrusted each other so much, as is the case in, in Afghanistan and in Somalia, arguably. Um, but the third, and, and in some ways most important, is domination, is societies in which one group has historically uh, dominated and subjugated the others uh, in ways which often has uh, very long-lasting uh, after effects, and that uh, is obviously the case with chattel slavery in the United States, and that continues to um, uh, characterize the country uh, uh, in deep ways today. Um, uh, so uh, part of what it is to resolve that history is to uh, find ways to, to address those, those failings and to make sure that the fate of people living in the society does not uh, forever continue to depend on the mistreatment that their ancestors 
experienced, uh, and 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 that is indeed uh, a very important part of a solution of a puzzle. Um, but then, when you're talking about history, you also have to be exact, right? Let's go back to this way that people really very casually and normally and naturalized way speak about whites and people of color in the United States. Well. Uh, you know, it's one thing to be descended from generations and generations of people who endured slavery and Jim Crow and really the worst crimes of American history. Um, but, you know, if somebody has European royal ancestry on one side and Indian Brahmin uh, ancestry on the other side and uh, grows up, let's say, in the affluent suburbs of New York City going to some of the top private schools in the country, to say that that person is a person of color in a similar or comparable way to the person who, you know, grows up in a really deeply impoverished neighborhood in the south side of Chicago, um, who's descended from these uh, generations of slavery. That is just bizarre metaphysical racialist thinking. It obscures much more about reality uh, than it shows. So, mm. so absolutely, you can't understand America today uh, without understanding the way in which slavery and uh, other forms of mistreatment of African Americans continue to shape the country today. But to, to take that and to drive from it this essential metaphysical division between whites and people of color is, is just very strange. But don't you think that part of the reason that divide continues to exist is because the history of injustice hasn't been dealt with? That there haven't been there hasn't been a reckoning with what happened in the past with these historically dominant groups. And because of that, these divisions continue to exist. Uh well, it, it it depends on the exact nature of a division. I don't think that's a good explanation for why, uh, you know, the kind of individual I just sort of thought about uh, counts as a person of color or is sort of, uh, you know, put in one kind of ledger of of of, of those historical questions. That that doesn't mm. make sense to me at all. Um, you know, is you know, is the fact that actually the division between uh, black and non-black Americans, or perhaps even more narrowly between descendants of slave and of slaves and other Americans, including uh, the very successful uh, children and grandchildren of recent Kenyan and Nigerian immigrants. Right. Um, you know, it's the reason why that line is so stark. The historical injustice that has been visited upon most uh, black people living in the United States today, absolutely, a hundred percent, and and that is something that the country has to deal with. But but let's be specific in in what we're talking about rather than using these uh, uh, categories of what uh, Karen and Barbara Fields would call racecraft in order to jump from one thing to a very simplistic, generalized view of what the country looks like. Hmm. But even if you are, even if you try to be very specific about the way you talk about racial categories, at some point you do come up against the reality of that history of injustice. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is, do you, and this is why I was making the Lebanon analogy, because the Lebanon analogy, if you think about the Taif agreement in the 1990s, this, this agreement merely froze the problems. It didn't resolve them. And I wonder why the people on the, I wonder why when you are thinking about how to move on from the history of injustice in the United States, why you don't feel that, for example, reparations for slavery are part is part of that conversation to draw a line under it. Um, well, I'm not sure where you're getting this, but uh, but I'm not uh, opposed to reparations. Um, you know, even if you take uh, a libertarian approach, I'm not a libertarian, but if you take someone like Robert Nozick, um, he says that. Um, uh, you know, on a libertarian conception, there's three basic elements 
of justice. Uh, the first is justice and acquisition, that you have to acquire uh, your property in a, a just matter, manner. The second is justice in transfer, um, that uh, you know nobody has robbed your money or expropriated it from you. Uh, and that, according to Nozick, can justify deep inequalities of outcomes. So if you have one star basketball player, um, uh, you know, and everybody starts off with $5 and everybody decides to pay 10 cents to see the star basketball player perform, then by the end of it, the basketball player will be really rich and the others will not be, and that's perfectly fine. But even Nozick recognizes that there also then has to be a form of rectificatory justice, which is to say that um, if it turns out that uh, these stipulations aren't true historically, that uh, somebody has acquired the property by stealing it, or somebody has in extreme way had the labor stolen from them uh, for centuries, um, then that uh, justifies some form of redress. And so on this very basic set of principles, hmm. um, it's obvious why you might end up thinking that you should have some form of reparations. And I'm not at all opposed to that in principle. I think there's complicated practical questions about what that would mean, um, but but in principle, I'm in favor of that. Now, here's where I, where, where I do become very careful. Mm. I would much rather have a very generous form of one-time reparation than some form of ongoing racial scheme where, uh, by virtue of the color of your skin, you then have a very different set of rights and duties within a country, because that precisely means that we are not redressing the historical injustice in ways that makes it easier to build a society where those distinctions become less important because they are less shaping of uh, fates and outcomes and all of those kinds of things. Right. But rather, we're building a society in which, in a lasting manner, you will be defined um, by your ethnicity. Um, and that's particularly the case if, as is essentially the case in America, the sort of quasi-schemes of reparation that we choose, like affirmative action, which is not supposed to be a scheme of reparation, but clearly is motivated in many ways by that, yes. then end up including a lot of people who have not historically uh, experienced that injustice. So I have wonderful, wonderful students who are you know, kids and grandkids of uh, immigrants from, from Africa, and I'm very, very happy that they're in my classroom. Um, but the one strange point of overlap I have with a far-left group that I normally disagree with, called the American Descendants of Slavery, ADOS, is that they're right to point out, but it's kind of weird, that 50-plus percent of black students at Ivy League universities in the United States are actually recent immigrants or children of recent immigrants yeah. from African countries and from elites yeah. in those countries, right? That's a really weird way of running a quasi-reparation scheme. Yeah, the most famous, of course, being Barack Obama's father, who emigrated from Kenya. And for that matter, Kamala Harris's ancestors, who uh, I believe were enslaved but not in the United States, right? So it's very interesting that mm. you see a lot of uh, 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 people at, at the highest level of American society um, being the descendants of recent black immigrants. And again, that, that reinforces the point you were making earlier on, right? How deeply the history of injustice continues to shape the country and how hard it makes it um, uh, for for people who have experienced those centuries of injustice, whose ancestors have experienced those centuries of injustice, uh, to rise to the very highest levels in society. So this is, uh, you know, a reason to deal with another reason to deal with it. It's not a reason not to deal with it, um, but 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 there is a weird hesitance to to point that out in the in in in, in the United States. And one of the most undertold stories about contemporary America is the you know complicated relationship that uh, 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 black Americans whose ancestors have been in the country for a very long time 
have with uh, Black Americans whose whose parents or grandparents immigrated uh, more recently from African countries. Mm, yeah, very underexplored. Let's move on then to talk about the role of the state, because I wanted to ask you about your ideas about uh, where the role of the state would fit in. Um, you've talked about the importance of having a strong state in maintaining liberal rights and freedoms. And you've also said that it's important to energetically punish those who seek to undermine them. Well, look, uh, if you have a very diverse society with people with different sets of beliefs and so on, you want to draw the tent as far as, as broad as possible, right? You want to make it possible for people um, with the broadest possible set of different ideas about how they want to live and how they want to go about their life uh, to coexist in peace and hopefully not just in peace, but in some amount of solidarity. Um, but of course, there are going to be people who are not willing to accept that. There are going to be people who say, uh, you know, unless you live the way I do, um, I'm going to go and beat you up. Unless you worship the way I do, I'm going to go and threaten you. Yeah. Um, and even though we should be uh, as uh, not as tolerant, but as welcoming as possible to different ways of living and to different ways of going through your life and what you think is important to you, that is one of the key promises of free society. The moment that somebody starts to threaten their fellow citizens for doing the same thing, for going about their lives peacefully, uh, you have to have a state that intervenes very clearly and without being apologetic about it. And I guess I wonder where you can draw the line, though, because I'm thinking about it in the context of the Middle Eastern perspective, where there are, you know, there are some powerful generals who will tell you that they are protecting people's rights when they suppress elections and arrest opposition members. And there are actually liberals in the Middle East who would be happy about that, happy about that repression. So afraid are they of the Islamists who they think might repress them. Is it justifiable for the state to go that far? Well, I'm talking here about what the rules are by which a democratic state is bound, right? So I'm talking about uh, what are you free to do as an individual citizen and what are you not free to do as an individual citizen? Now, you're free to engage in whatever form of worship you want. You're free to um, uh, sort of cut yourself off from a lot of society, as uh, Amish uh, do in the United States, for example. And all of that should be should be acceptable. You're not free to say, hey, if you have that sexual partner, I'm going to beat you up. You're not free to say, unless you worship in the way that uh, I wish, um, or unless uh, you refrain from saying things that I find to be hurtful to my religion, um, uh, I'm going to uh, attack you in some kind of way. So so, so mm. that's what I'm talking about here. Um, uh, you know, what you're talking about is a situation in which you don't have established democracies. Um, and in which some people then claim that uh, the reason why they want to exercise power or the reason why they want to uh, stage a military coup, for example, um, is uh, uh, that they care about those kinds of values. Now, I think most of the time that is insincere in any case. Um, and it doesn't strike me, for example, that in a country like, uh, uh, like Egypt, yeah. uh, there are meaningful liberal rights because the most fundamental liberal rights, which is to uh, criticize the government, to organize against it, uh, certainly is going to land you in prison uh, pretty quickly. Um, uh, but, but, but you know, we can talk about sort of what you do in situations in which a big majority of a population really is deeply anti-liberal and what kind of institutions are appropriate there. Um, uh, that's not the, the topic that I was talking about. 
Um, and I certainly tend to be very skeptical that people who claim to be defending individual rights in those circumstances, in fact, do or will. Mm. And the place, of course, when you talk about people uh, being attacked, the place where you see people being attacked most these days is not really in public, it's in the public sphere. And this is something that you've grappled with about the, the question of how we should engage with each other in the public sphere, you know, like on Twitter and so on. Um, you call it the most important battleground uh, in the fight to reinvigorate pluralist values. Why do you think the way that we talk on social media or in the public sphere through the media, why do you think that matters now so much in terms of the discourse? Well, I would reframe that a little bit because um, I think you know everybody is free to say what they want on social media. And in fact, I'm 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 close to a free speech absolutist. I think there should be very few restrictions on what you can say on social media. Um, I, now, I would like for people to have respectful political discourse with each other. That's certainly what I try. Don't always succeed, but try to live up to myself. I don't think that calling people names or, you know, vilifying people as a particularly healthy or productive form of political discourse. But mm-hmm. um, you should be free to do that. I come from a country, Germany, where I can't say, uh, let's say that the chancellor is an asshole. If I said that publicly, he could sue me and he would win and I'd have to pay some money mm-hmm. to him. I think that's uh, absurd. Um, so uh, uh, so people should be free to say what they want. Um, what I worry about is less what people say on social media than the way in which a lot of very influential social institutions are now run by social media. Um, so that when a set of people criticize uh, a university professor or a comedian or uh, somebody else on social media, um, their universities or their employers or their networks um, listen to what is often a minority opinion, what is often the opinion of a very small number of ideologically extreme people, uh, and then go and fire those people. Um, And as a result, you do have a situation in which a a huge number of people um, feel uh, unable to think and reflect and speak freely about the world. Um, You know, I have great students who I really enjoy teaching. Um, uh, One of the things that makes me sad is when I speak to them is that when I was in college, uh, we would stay up till 2 or 3 a.m. debating the world, and it was a free-flowing, fearless conversation, which we're trying on ideas. We're doing that in an earnest way, by the way. We weren't trolling yeah. around. We're trying to yeah, figure yeah, out yeah. what we think about the world. But yeah. it was fearless. We didn't think, tomorrow I'm going to get in trouble for what I say drunkenly at 2 a.m. to my friends. I'm trying to grapple with the world. When I speak to my students now, uh, most of them say we don't have that, that you know, they would never talk about controversial issues in the dining hall, Perhaps there's one or two friends who, whom they trust to have those kinds of conversations with. Mm. That is really upsetting to me. And in fact, there's just a new poll out which shows that the number of students on campus who say that uh, there's a lot of people who don't feel comfortable expressing their views has increased dramatically over the last years and is now in a majority. So if you have the people who are being educated to be leaders in the society um, not able to actually speak their mind to their friends when they're in college, you know that you have a social crisis. You think that that council culture is much more dangerous than just merely being something that happens in the academy. You think that as as that as those people go out into the world, it will have an influence on the political culture, which will be detrimental. Well, it already has. I mean, I'm struck by the way in which when I arrived in the United States 15 years ago, I never heard people say casually, of course, I would never say this in public, um, you know, now mm. in the United States, uh, you know, again, my friends are sort of, you know, like left of center academics and think tankers and journalists. 
Um, I hear that phrase in virtually every conversation. Oh, of course, I'd never say this publicly. Um, you know, and by the way, that is a lot of the appeal of the far right, because people can smell this. People mm. can smell, for example, that a lot of congressmen in the United States will not say what they actually think because they're fearing rebellions from their own staff. Right? They will not take a position, not because they 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 think it's right on principle, or not because they think that it'll win them or lose them an election, but yeah. because they're worried that the twenty-five-year-old staffers are going to denounce them and that'll get them into all kinds of complicated problems. Voters smell that. And why can somebody like Donald Trump be competitive? Not because most Americans love Donald Trump, but because they say, you know what, I don't like much like Trump and I don't much trust him. But I don't trust that the other guys even tell me what they really think. Why should I trust them to stand up for my interests? Do you think that the left, of which you are part, have adequately grappled with the consequences of that? No, I don't think they have. Where do you think they are in that that transition? Where do you think that they are at the moment? Well, I do think that things have been becoming a little bit better for a couple of years for two reasons. One is that... um, Part of what allowed those very restrictive speech norms to take over was Donald Trump being in office, right? Because at a moment at which the threat from Trump and the populist right was so present and just so, you know, in your face every damn day, um, uh, anybody who criticized uh, people on, quote, unquote, their own side started to look like a traitor, right? Like, why are you criticizing anything on the left when Trump is there? You're just secretly running interference for him or something like that. And that allowed the worst kinds of ideas to take over and and, and made it much more likely for him to be reelected, by the way. Um, And then the second is that you're seeing um, uh, many of these ideas being put into place and you're starting to see very bad results from that and very bad impact from that in the real world. And people are, are fed up with it. So in San Francisco, for example, you had, um, uh, you know, very far left members of a local school board who during the pandemic, when schools in San Francisco were closed pretty much throughout the pandemic, um, were, you know, uh, thinking about renaming schools named after Abraham Lincoln. Um, and so instead of making sure that kids get an education, that parents get a break from having to look after the kids 24 seven, um, you know, they were engaged in these, you know, really silly, uh, language games um, and and some of these uh, most visible uh, members of the school board have now been uh, voted out of office in a recall election in a very very left leaning city. I think mm. that's because people were seeing uh, the negative practical consequences uh, that ensue when when nobody dares to oppose those ideas. Lastly, then, I wanted to ask you, this is my last question to you, and I wanted to ask you about optimism and what it is about the current state of the diverse democracy that we live in that you that makes you optimistic. Yeah, you know, it's, it's great, actually. I think it's been a, a lovely conversation where it's given insights into some of my thinking and, and many of the themes of the book, but it's leaving one big piece out, which is why I'm optimistic. So I'll say a little bit about it at the end of the conversation, but mm. if people really want to find out why I'm optimistic, they have to read the damn book. Uh, <laughs> the Great Experiment. This is my sales pitch. Um, <laughs> Very good. The, um, uh, but but, but to, to, to give you a sense of it, you know, I think that a lot of people in this debate start with a really easy optimism, which which I would have had 20 years ago as well. Um, and that's, you know, how hard can it be to build these diverse democracies? Why do we need to be defined by all of these uh, different kind of identity questions? Um, uh, you know, it should be easy. And yet, you're looking at 
present reality. And you're seeing uh, discrimination and racism and uh, the rise of far right and, and, and all of these other kinds of problems. And when it becomes very time to say, well, look, if we're failing at this really easy task, um, then there must be something uniquely wrong with us. We must suck. And that must mean that there's no hope for the future. Hmm. Um, now, in my book, I, I, I sort of, the, the movement of the argument, if you will, is the exact opposite. I start with a real recognition of the difficulties of our groupish nature, which makes it so easy to discriminate against outsiders, with the fact that historically these ethnic and religious boundaries have so often led to conflict, or something we haven't talked about, which is that democratic institutions can exacerbate this, because democracy is always... Um, inspire a search for a majority. So it becomes much more tempting to say, hey, if this other group is growing more quickly than mine, is this going to undermine my power? So mm -hmm. there's real reasons why this is really hard. And when you go back to our societies today and you measure them by the yardstick of these difficulties and you measure them, frankly, by their own past, um, I think you come out being much more optimistic. I think Britain, for example, for all of its problems and flaws, is a much more naturally... Uh, inclusive and tolerant and forward-looking country today, a country in which people recognize in a much more natural way that people um, who have their origins uh, on the Indian subcontinent or in the Caribbean or in other parts of the world are Brits like everybody else. That was the case even when I went to university there 20 years ago. Um, you know, when you look at uh, the success of immigrants, um, the pessimism about this that you see on both sides of the political spectrum is just misplaced. Um, uh, uh, it's you know, The far right says that immigrants today are somehow inferior. Many people on the left say that they don't stand a chance because of discrimination and so on. The truth of it is that despite real discrimination that exists, they're succeeding at remarkable levels. Um, in the United States, immigrants today from Mexico and El Salvador and uh, Vietnam and, and Kenya are integrating and rising the socioeconomic ladder as quickly as Italian and Irish immigrants did a century ago. And so um, I think if you start with an appreciation of the difficulty of the great experiment, you can end with a hard-won optimism about our ability uh, to meet these challenges. Yeah, Shaman, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed this. Yasha's podcast is called The Good Fight. You can also buy his book, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure in All Good Bookshops. This week's podcast was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafai. You can subscribe to the New Lines Magazine podcast on your favorite podcast app. And of course, you can find more of the best stories from the Middle East and beyond on our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you.